Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate and undergraduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Anthropology Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short, and also in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. In this series, we are continuing our one-on-one interviews with anthropologists from different subfields, and today's guest here with me is Dr. Sean Downey, a cultural environmental anthropologist. Is Ecological that how you best? anthropologist. Ecological anthropologist. So welcome, Dr. Downey. Thank you very much. So the first question that I like to ask my guests here is, how do you define anthropology? Well, I define anthropology as the study of human behavior, culture, language, uh, in the past and the present. Very neat and simple. <laughs> and then how did you get into anthropology? So what is your origin story? Hmm, my origin story. Well, can I tell you a little story? Yep. Uh, so when I was a kid, I actually traveled a fair amount with my father. Um, and one of our trips, we ended up in Belize in Central America. And uh, we took a trip across the border, as many tourists do, uh, although there were fewer in the, the late 80s than there are now. But uh, we went across the border into Guatemala, drove the road to Tikal, and, uh, you know, we were just touristing around uh, in a rented Ford Bronco, and we got to Tikal, and we're walking around the site, and I don't know, probably some of the listeners have been to Tikal, and it's fairly well developed today, but uh, at the time, um, Temple 5, which is sort of in the back, had not been excavated uh, significantly, and it was still covered with you know, bush and trees, tropical forest, and uh, there was sort of a path and a rope up to the top of it. And we clambered our way up, and uh, we were sitting there at the top, and if you're not familiar with uh, Mayan temples, uh, at the top there's typically like a like a small room where the, the kings and the priests would um, would go and uh, conduct their ceremonies, and, and uh, there's a wooden lintel that's still there uh, today, actually. Wow. Uh, there was uh, certainly in 1987, and you could see some of the inscriptions at the top, and I sat up there at the top of this pyramid with my father, <laughs> and we actually smoked a pretty nice Cuban cigar uh, <laughs> and stared out over the forest, and uh, it just was, that moment um, obviously was kind of uh, an important one for me, and, and it, it, it was important because, you know, I, I I realized I was sitting on top of this this object, this this pyramid that uh, hadn't been excavated. That there, who knew what was underneath it? Yeah, uh, it, you know, the the forest was still there, and it just inspired me to to figure out, you know, what was there, sort of broadly defined. Um, you know, that's the archaeology that, uh, as an undergraduate at Boston University, mm-hmm. uh, that's where I started out, and then uh, over time, I I switched to sociocultural anthropology. Okay. Uh, although I flirted with archaeology again when I did my <laughs> postdoc at university. City College London, and then yeah. ultimately ended up uh, as an ecological anthropologist today. Can you tell us a little about a little bit more about what ecological anthropology is? Sure. Um, you know, it's the 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 real question that ecological anthropologists are interested in is the relationship between human behavior. Uh, human biology, human culture, thought, beliefs, language, and the natural environment around them. Now, this term natural environment is sort of uh, more flexible these days, I yeah. think, than it used to be. Uh, it was dichotomized in the past, uh, humans on one side and nature on the other. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we have a different appreciation for how mixed those two uh, two objects really are. Uh, and ecological anthropologists are really, I think, interested in untangling or teasing apart those relationships and understanding how, how they developed, how they evolve in time and in space. 
And you mentioned that uh, in that trip with your father, you started off in Belize, right? Which is where you do your work. Yeah, currently. that's right. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit more about your current work and uh, how it contributes to anthropology? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I've got a long history with Belize, uh, starting actually back <laughs> then in 1987. And, um, yeah, the first couple trips were as, as uh, tourists. But, uh, you know, as I came to know the place and and uh, kept going back. Um, you know, it became more and more professional over the years. Uh, I, I was a field school student in, in the early 90s. And then when I did my dissertation work at University of Arizona in the 2000s, I decided to explore the south of the country, which fewer people go to or went to uh, at that time uh, in the Toledo district. And so I started working uh, in a village called Crique Sarco. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is in the south. And uh, my current project is still there today. Uh, so I've continued on with some of the original dissertation work. Uh, and I have a, have a National Science Foundation grant to to explore uh, one of the big themes in mm-hmm. ecological anthropology, which is Sweden agriculture. So okay. this is uh, sometimes pejoratively referred to as slash and burn agriculture, right? <laughs> but that's, you know, got negative connotations. Uh, we yeah. hear it all the time in politics. And, and my, my, uh, my project is really exploring the sustainability of this, this system, you know, what some people call slash and burn, but I've uh, I and others in anthropology prefer to call Sweden. Um, and I'm trying to see how community social norms, uh, mm-hmm. relationships between people that live in the villages, uh, can lead to sustainable forest outcomes, even uh, under the sort of clearing regimes that uh, that they use to, mm-hmm. to provide subsistence for their families. So can you tell us a little bit more about what Sweden agriculture is and what the... Um I guess the issues with it are, the concerns with it, and how it would or would not be sustainable. Sure. Well, so Sweden, it's uh, it's a agricultural practice mm-hmm. uh, where farmers go out in the forest um, and they chop down, um, you know, an area depending on how much they need to clear that year, how much they think they need. Uh, you know, it could be a couple acres, two, three, four, five acres, um, and they'll so they'll chop down forest, allow the the trees and the bush to to dry for a while, uh, mm-hmm. and then they'll burn it. Uh, and so it's actually quite a um, dramatic and visceral experience. <laughs> and uh, when the, the early colonists were there, or the British colonizers mm-hmm. of Belize, uh, they were terrified and, and horrified at, at the thought of all these mahogany trees being burned up. Wow. Uh, and so there were, um, you know, the, the reaction, I think, this sort of original, the original, uh, or I should say the origin story of the term slash and burn mm-hmm. actually comes from this period in time, the, the colonists uh, seeing their their profits kind of go up in smoke for something <laughs> as banal as corn production, uh, right? So, anyways, that's a little diversion into the history of the term. Right, that's, yeah, <laughs> but uh, so they'll plant a, a crop of corn, uh, and in in these villages where I work, it involves a process of labor exchange. So people mm-hmm. help each other um, at the simplest level, uh, do some of the more labor intensive or dangerous tasks. And uh, labor exchange is actually a pretty fun community event. Uh, people enjoy doing it. Uh, it's a very Um, very uh, enjoyable aspect of their lives. And they'll tell you that. And so after the the corn uh, grows, it's harvested, as you can imagine. And then typically the cycle will repeat itself for a couple years, two, three years. um, And uh, they can then let the land go fallow. Uh, And fallow just means letting it, leaving it alone, essentially, Mm -hmm. to to a greater or lesser degree and allowing the the tropical forest to recover. And the cool thing about Sweden is that if you do this and if you don't, um, you know, if you don't chop it for too many years and you let yeah. it grow back, it will actually come back pretty quickly. Um, you know, 7, 10, 15 year fallow lengths uh, are, are somewhat sustainable. Uh, the longer you let it go, the more sustainable it becomes. And so the problem with Sweden is when those fallow lengths um, shorten, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. too much. And that typically happens when you, um, when you have markets engaging right. with the subsistence production. Uh, and so if, you, if you're extracting trees for logging or if you're uh, cultivating crops such as rice and selling it in the markets, uh, then you see additional pressures on the land. And that's where my research comes in because in, in my project I'm trying to understand the role of markets, for, uh, right. certainly, um, but I'm trying to sort of hold them constant and mm-hmm. to a certain extent so that I can understand the social dynamics within the villages that, that prevent people from topping too much. Uh, yeah. too much or clearing too much land and l- giving the land an adequate time to recover. And I think those are, you know, that's where human culture comes in yeah. because there's sort of this, there's this uh, inclination to, uh, I guess the game theorists would call it defect, right? <laughs> you know, to take too much for yourself. Right. And that's really what leads to the degradation of these landscapes. But okay. but uh, what, what we're seeing is that um, people don't tend to do that. Yeah. You know, they tend to take more when they need more if there's a health emergency or those right. kinds of things. But uh, when, when all other things are, are equal, uh, people tend to take the right amount and give it the as much time as they can to to recover. That makes sense. And so what is a normal day like in the field for you when you're doing your field work? <laughs> normal day. Yeah, great question. That wasn't on the list of no, questions. No, it wasn't on the list of questions. <laughs> um, a normal day. Well, you know, it's actually pretty, it's, yeah, I have to say it's fun. It's enjoyable <laughs> in the field. I, I'm not sure all field sites are that way. Uh, but mine, mine is, I, yeah. you know, I like being in the village. It's, um, it's a very different sort of a diurnal cycle. You get up a lot earlier. It's hot because oh, it's the tropics. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the work is done in the morning. So, right. you know, people get up with light and so, so do we, um, you know, we, we eat with, uh, you know, eat in people's houses typically. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I don't have a large field crew. It's not like a big archaeology project. Right. So we can, we can do that. <laughs> and it's a nice opportunity for people to, uh, actually to make some money too. Yeah. You know, we support different, different cooks, uh, season right. to season in different, uh, households in, in the village. Yeah. Um, so we get up, we, we eat, uh, well, really coffee is always the first thing. <laughs> um, especially that early. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it depends what we're doing. This is a very interdisciplinary project. Yeah. So so um, this last year, this last spring, when I was down there with uh, my PhD student, um, we we got up and we um, we were doing a biodiversity study. So okay. this involved um, a lot of work out in the bush, out in the forest. Yeah. And so we would load up into the truck, uh, pick up a couple workers that were that were helping us out yeah. um, or uh, guiding us, keeping us <laughs> safe. Basically, the the. The, everything comes down to our help, you know, our yeah. help and our assistance and our um, collaborators, really, yeah. in the field. In this case, my my uh, the guy that I've been working with for the long, very long time is a he's a community peri- parabiologist. Mm. He's been trained actually in ecology, and so okay. we were uh, we would drive out to the field, hike into the forest for about an hour, mm-hmm. and uh, we were. Uh, doing ecology, really. Yeah. Um, you know, we were uh, we had gridded off an area of the forest and, and sampled within that area, um, counted the trees, identified the species, okay. measured the the diameters uh, diameters of breast height, and then the heights of the trees, uh, and in some cases t- took uh, took samples for further identification. So, no, that's just yeah. one one example. Were those the areas that had been? left to fallow and then we're regrowing or were those areas? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's the right question. Um, in that, the, the way that we set up the sampling for yeah. that project, we were sampling across the fallow classes. Okay. Now, it's obviously, it's pretty time consuming <laughs> counting all those trees. So we didn't get, uh, you know, many, many yeah. samples. But uh, we we looked at uh, two samples in a primary forest area. And then we looked at, I think it was like a 20-year age class of yeah. a forest that had grown back for 20 years. And then a five-year age class 
Um, and then I think we had a 10 or 12 year age class as okay. well. So, that so was, you can really see how sustainable this is by looking at what growth is left. Yeah, I mean, we're really happening. looking yeah. at the forest succession, uh, you know, as, as the trees recover, as the biodiversity yeah. recovers, what patterns do we see? And, the, you know, the question again is, um, you know, how does human behavior affect yeah. that? And, you know, is there anything that the people are doing as they're clearing or, and, and, um, and working in those lands that, that, um, that changed those dynamics. Right. Uh, and so for, you know, one, one thing we noticed was the, the mm-hmm. role of palms. Uh, so okay. palms are often left uh, after people clear their fields. Um, and, you know, you don't really know why. Yeah. <laughs> people tell you, well, we just leave the palms. Okay. Um, you, know, there's, you know, there's not a you know, profound theory of yeah. palm ecology necessarily there. And yeah. you can kind of pick at that in interviews and get some sense through the traditional ecological knowledge. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter remains that palms are often left and other trees are chopped down. And uh, so we were, you know, we talked a lot about that, trying to figure out why palms were there and how that might affect the sort of the succession of, um, of species that came in. Um, you can imagine a palm sort of branch out and yeah. they might shelter um, younger, younger uh, recruiting species. Yeah. And then as uh, those trees grow up and over the height, of, because palms are short typically compared right. to, you know, the larger tropical trees, the, uh, the palms are sort of outcompeted over time. And so you can see sort of how that human decision to leave those palms might affect the characteristics of that forest canopy over time. That's fascinating. I love questions like that where it's, uh, why was this left behind. Mm-hmm. Just, it is, just is. Yeah. So you also mentioned interdisciplinary, which is something that we've been talking about a lot on this podcast as well, is mm. how anthropology just, it's not a field on its own, right? It relies on all of the disciplines around it. We all interact together. Um, and so in this season, we've been talking a lot about diversity. So can you talk a little bit about how your research contributes to our understanding of human diversity? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in your question, I hear two different kinds of diversity. There's sort of yeah. intellectual diversity, and then there's also human diversity. Yeah. Um, I'll take the first one first, you know, intellectual diversity. Yeah, my, my work has always been quite interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, the current project, for example, uh, you know, we were doing tropical ecology, uh, yeah. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which has been uh, a learning process, yeah. I think, for all of us. And, uh, you know, at the same time, last year, we were doing behavioral economics. You know, we did, uh, we did some um, experimental games with with, with villagers okay. uh, where they made sort of choices about um, how much forest to clear in sort of an artificial setting that, you know, okay. that we put, you know, put together inside the school. Uh, so that's pretty interdisciplinary. Of course, we're doing using methods from anthropology interviews and household surveys and participant observation and these kinds mm-hmm. of things. But uh, maybe the coolest part of the current project is uh, the drone survey. Uh, okay. which, uh, you're a student in the department. You probably yep. heard about it. Um, yeah. So we, we've been scanning the forest with um, with some some pretty high performance drones that that allow us to get uh, create high resolution uh, maps of of uh, the the farming lands that are around the villages. So um, the most recent se- uh, season we um, uh, we scanned eighteen thousand. Uh, this is the two thousand eighteen season. We scanned eighteen thousand acres over the course of a couple weeks in, in higher resolution than what you can get out of the satellite imagery. That's and awesome. So, That's a lot of acres. <laughs> it is, and the, you know the cool thing that we're doing the interdisciplinary aspect of that drone scan because lots of people fly drones is that we're simultaneously mapping those lands with villagers. So, yeah. we're, you know, we're, you know, there's a bunch of people in the village that, uh, that know how to use uh, GPSs, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and we're, you know, asking them to go out, uh, walk the land, and take GPS points and record information about the land use. Uh, so we have people, experts in the land, yeah. recording information about the fallow cycles and the, the, who's working where, uh, the kinds of activities that, that they're undertaking in the land. And so we can really come up with a, an integrated sort of social and 
spatial model of how those forests, the, the forest dynamics using that uh, sort of integrated data set. So that's intellectual diversity. Yeah. Um, in terms of cultural diversity, you know, the, the project um, it had sort of um, auspicious timing. Uh, you know, it was for about the last 20 years in southern Belize, uh, the Maya people have been engaged in a sort of a legal struggle with the Belizean government uh, for ownership is of what are ostensibly sort of um, government land. So mm-hmm. a good part of Toledo is owned by the government. It's not private property as we conceive it, of it in the United States. And uh, and they've been arguing for many years that uh, the Maya have been here for a very long time, um, a very, very long time, <laughs> and that they have rights to the land that the government claims. And so this went to court several years ago uh, in, in Belize, and then it was appealed up to a higher uh courts in the uh, Caribbean. And um, it's actually pretty interesting because the the Maya won these cases and the government appealed and it went back to court and then the Maya won again. (laughs) And what this, what this led to is, uh, you know, is um, a legal right to land tenure in southern Belize. And so the communities now are, are really grappling with um, the how to do this mm-hmm. because this is, um, this is new, right? So this is, you know, we're not, we're not talking ancient Mayan populations here. I mean, these, these are contemporary communities living in the world, um, and they're trying to figure out how to create, how to manage, how to use this land that has been acknowledged as theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the context of the Belizean government. And so it's really an amazing moment uh, in southern Belize as these communities try to f- try to figure out how to do this, how to, how to take advantage of this opportunity. And so my project has been sort of on the side of this, of course. You know, the most important thing that's going on in Toledo is that. Right. Uh, and my hope is that my project... Uh, can provide some in- insights. Uh, it's sort of a basic science project. Uh, we're trying to understand these these social and ecological dynamics, and uh, you know m- the hope is that um, you know focusing in on the sustainability of this sort of basic uh, form of subsistence in these villages uh, is going to provide some support as the communities make decisions that will affect them, you know, on into the future for for decades and decades. I look forward to hearing the results that come out of this study um, and out of the the NSF grant that you've done and with your PhD students. It's going to be years of different data sets being published on this, I'm imagining. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Downey. And thank you to our listeners for joining us again. And while you're waiting for the next podcast, remember, subscribe to us and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. Leave us a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department.